0: Well, thank you, Danny, for that introduction. I didn't know you were introducing me or I would not have agreed to do Q&A today, um, but I uh, can't help but think. I don't know how many of you know Danny's story. Uh, I think he maybe shared his testimony around here, but uh, just I don't have really time to go into it other than to say that our history does go back a lot of years, and when he was teaching overseas in a lot of different countries, uh, he would come back every summer and request to meet with me. And so we had this this interesting relationship because we wouldn't see him for months and months. And then I'd get an email, I'm going to be back in Bozeman for like two weeks. Can we meet? Just talk about the Bible and life. And, and so we would do that. And, uh, you know, I'd always want to know how you're doing spiritually. And so he would come in and meet with me every summer and lie to me while we met. And then he would go away for another year. Then he'd come back and lie to me again the next summer and then go. And uh, I didn't always know it until one time he... I confessed it to me, and the Lord really began to work in his life. So it, it is quite an amazing story. So, and really fascinating to see. Evan, are you still here? Are you, or, oh yeah. See Evan up here. I, reflecting back, that uh, it was like 12 years ago or so when he was a freshman in high school, and I was his basketball coach. And I think that's just hard to believe. Some of those uh, those relationships. So anyway, today is uh, Q and A, and for those of you who are new. Um, Maybe you don't know what it's about. It's basically just a time for you to ask any question that's uh, on your heart and mind. It could be about a passage, about theology, about ministry, Christian living. No guarantee I can answer it, but we'll try. Uh, The only restriction on it, just for those of you who are new, is that we don't want you using this uh, time, not that any of you would ever do this, but we don't want you to use this to pit faculty against faculty, okay? Uh, if you, you know, we have some different perspectives on things and they're healthy differences uh, as we continue to wrestle through things like the extent of the atonement and, and wh- where was Paul at when he wrote Romans 7 and his spiritual pilgrimage and just a number of issues like that. So we're all wrestling as a faculty and growing. So uh, the, the purpose of this is not for you to kind of get ammo to pit one against the other. Other than that, there are no restrictions or or limitations. So... With that in mind, whoever would like to go first, jump right in. Yes? Uh, it's two verses that struggle in with all um, the
1: Romans 7.20 saying, "Now if I do what I will not do, it is no longer I. It is less sin that dwells in me. And then Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, uh says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he
0: yeah. That? Yeah. Well, and you know, I referenced this earlier because Romans seven is a tough passage to wrestle with. the The jury is out as to where where Paul was at in his spiritual pilgrimage. Um, there are basically three views that Paul is talking about his struggle pre Christ, and there's a lot of validity to that view because he. he He not as a converted man, because some of the statements that he says in there, you can certainly take them that way. The other is that Paul is just describing his uh, his experience as a mature Christian, his battle with sin, which all of us again would acknowledge, whether we see Romans seven in that way. Every honest Christian says, "I still battle with sin." Call it what you want, because some Christians want to you know haggle over the words whether it's the flesh, the sin nature, sinful disposition. There's something in us that still pushes us the wrong way. Everyone would have to admit that. Uh, The other view of Romans 7 is um, um, one I ran into by Martin Lloyd-Jones. I didn't realize, I know Gail and I have talked some through the years, I didn't realize his view sounds like lines up exactly with Martin Lloyd-Jones, that it's right at the, basically at the moment of regeneration where he's quickened and alive, but hasn't been converted. You know, there's sort of just a, a time there where the Spirit of God quickens you and, and, and makes you aware, and, and then you eventually uh, believe and repent and are converted, etc. So, those are the views. Um, but regardless of which way you take it, uh, what Paul is not saying there, uh, some people have accused him of this, he's not, when he talks about it's no longer I but sin that dwells in, he's not in any way diminishing his own responsibility. He's not trying to get around that. And say, well, it's not my fault. You know, the old Flip Wilson, the comedian, the devil made me do it. Or it's just no, no. He's he's just trying to again. Wherever you view him at, pre-Christian as a mature Christian or what, uh, he's just trying to wrestle through that sort of. Uh, I don't know if dichotomy is a good word, but that that sort of um, you know, as a my, my view is that Paul is talking about as a saved man. So let me just come at it from that standpoint. Uh, that Paul is trying to say, there's really this interesting dichotomy in me. On the one hand, I'm a new creation in Christ, and I want to love and obey God, and I do, and yet there's something in me that pushes me the wrong direction. And, oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And so the flesh pulls me down. So he's, he's not, again, trying to divide himself in such a way as to to escape responsibility, but he's just acknowledging what we all want uh, all will acknowledge, if we're intellectually honest, is that we're sort of a split personality sometimes. We love God and we want to obey God, and yet there's a draw toward evil. Um, so that, that's what it, I think Paul is saying. Now, to tie that in with your passage in Corinthians, where we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive in the body things that we've done. Um, I, are you wrestling with the fact that he says, in the body there, and then he uses the similar phrase in Romans 7? Is that the struggle? Well, and that's one of the difficulties. Obviously, any of the positions that you take has some difficulty, or every Christian would agree on what Romans 7 is saying. The fact that there's, there's um, you know, it's hard to conceive of Paul saying some of the statements he says as a saved man, in one sense, and it's hard to really understand him saying some of the statements he would say there if he were an unsaved man. So either view, or even right there at the point of salvation, either view has its difficulties, are all godly, scholarly commentators would just hold hold to the same view. So you're right, you bring up a valid point, and I think it is valid to wrestle through um, because there's not an easy answer for it. But just to me, t- sort of wrap it up with the, the Corinthians, what Paul is saying there, of course, is that there is a distinction between uh, the fact that as Christians we are to use the phrase from Ephesians 1, we are accepted in the Beloved One. There is nothing we can do to be more accepted. That's our position. But in practice, we can either be pleasing or not pleasing. So in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, where he says, uh, "You know, we all, all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive things done in the body, whether good or bad. Um, and in fact, he prefaced it by saying, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. So clear The clear implication is that as a believer who is fully accepted in Christ, it's not automatic that we're fully pleasing. And and any parent understands that distinction because any any good parent understands you love your kids unconditionally. They can't do anything to to, to be more accepted by you. But they don't always please you, that's for sure. Sometimes they're pleasing, sometimes they're not pleasing. It has nothing to do with your unconditional love for them. So there's the, the parallel there in our relationship to God. So is that I don't know if that okay okay good yes touch on uh huh yeah for those the, the, the just to give the background there I was preach and preaching through the Gospel of Mark and came to chapter seven where Jesus has this classic confrontation with the religious leaders of his day over the washing of hands, and he makes that profound statement, it's not that which enters the mouth that's going to defile a man, but that which comes out of the mouth, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, and etc. And I just emphasize, because this was, I don't want to say new to me, but in some ways it was new to me as I was studying this, um, that Jesus actually says in Mark 7 that what comes out of you defiles you. And, um, I guess just wrestling through it on my own, I was just thinking, well, uh yeah, but if it's in you, you're already defiled, right? I mean, if you have bad thoughts, you're already defiled and i don't I, I wouldn't deny that, and I, and I certainly don't believe Jesus is saying contrary to that, uh because he says it comes out of your heart. But he does say he does make the statement that for from for from within, out of the heart of men proceed all these things. And these things come from within, and defile a man. So what I tried to con- counter on Sunday when I was preaching on this passage, I tried to counter the idea that says, well, if it's in your heart already, what does it matter? You're already defiled. So if you say it, it doesn't really make any difference anyway. And I would submit to you that it does make a difference, that Jesus was saying, yes, the, the fact that it's within the heart, you, you should deal with it at that level, on the heart level, but... When you let it out, you defile, and and you can just use any synonym you want to. It makes you dirty, unclean, impure, because, again, Jesus is contrasting their impurity or uncleanness, ceremonial, with actually, you're you're unclean before God. Uh, And it would tie in with exactly um, what Jesus tried to teach his disciples on the night before his death when he told Peter, you remember the story, he's washing the disciples' feet, he comes to Peter. And Peter says, you're never going to wash my feet. And then the Lord said, well, if I don't wash your feet, then we don't have anything to do with each other. Peter, in his classic overstatement, well, then give me a bath, you know, if that's the case. And Jesus said, no, Peter, the one who has been bathed, and he's using spiritual analogy there, the one who's been bathed, we would say saved, born again, regenerate, doesn't need to be rebathed. He just needs to have his feet washed. Because why? They get dirty. So it's the same exact parallel here. You get dirty. You make yourself dirty spiritually when you say things from your heart that are sinful or do things from your heart that are sinful. So in answer to your question, I think it's the exact parallel with, with Jesus, what he taught his disciples, and why John, who was there that night, would write 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive, our, forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's clear that John is referring to 1 John 1, nine. To relationally, not positionally. In other words, positionally, when we trust Christ, Colossians 1 says, All our sins are forgiven, all, past, present, and future. But relationally, uh, we get our feet dirty and need to have them washed. And so I think that's what Jesus is saying there, is that you say things, when you say things from your heart that are wrong, not only is it wrong that they're within, but by doing it, you make yourself dirty spiritually. And you need to get cleansed. 1 John 1 9. Sure. This is a question that was brought up uh, during the dino dig uh last
1: semester that I've been thinking about. Everyone else probably forgot about it. Mm -hmm. It's not a big deal. But I've been thinking about it ever since, and so I'd like to hear your take on it. And the question is, while we were there, we watched this DVD series, Amazing Animals at the Pie Uh of the Living. And so the premise is that certain animals have these specific traits that without them, they cannot survive. Point being, they could not have evolved. Mm, hmm mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm.
0: Um, they don't, or I shouldn't say they don't, they really can't, I don't think. Now, am I suggesting that I don't believe or that I do believe there was death before the fall? I don't know if I believe that in the animal world. But in answer to your question, the passage you probably know that's usually used is Romans 5. Uh, But in the context, when it talks about death entered, uh, at least we have to say that the emphasis on it is human death now? Whether again, whether you do an exposition, you would say it's the emphasis or it's actually teaching all or exclusively human. That again, you'd have to you'd have to wrestle through exegetically. But that would be the passage they go to. But all of your question does uh, all, all that background. Your question does raise the question of: Was Paul saying in Romans five, all death entered when Adam sinned, or is he? in context, referring to human death. Again, my view is that in context, he is, in my opinion, it's pretty clear, he is primarily referring to human death. Uh, I don't say, don't know if I could say exclusively. And is that because he goes on to say the answer is salvation? Mm-hmm. And that's the mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes. Yes. And even when he talks about death reigned from Adam to Moses before there was law, well, again, he's, he's in context talking about all the people that died. Now again, is he excluding the animal world? I don't know. That that's you know. So maybe the better the thing to do would be to ask someone who is you know a young Earth creationist and really more into more knowledgeable to say how would you defend the idea of death? No death in the animal world. And maybe there is a way to defend it, uh, but. The, all, all the discussion, just in answer to your question, all the, all the discussions I've been exposed to goes back. All of them go back to Romans five. Now, maybe there are other passages that do play in, but that's that's where I always hear the discussion go. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, sure. Sure. Well, you know, you you have both, that that statement comes out of Isaiah in one of the the futuristic passages, whether you apply that to the millennial kingdom or the eternal state or whatever. But the point that's being made there is that uh, it does seem pretty clear, uh, just coming back to the question there, that with, you know, with the fall and then the the flood and what came after it when man was allowed to eat animals and so forth, And there was even the stipulation made that if an animal takes another person's life, the animal's to be killed. There's clearly, in referencing your statements here, there clearly are implications, or maybe even stronger than implications in Scripture, that the animal world is out of sorts, however you want to say it, out of, you know. And so, again, it does tie in with the question because what was this pre-fall? Was there any of this that was pre-fall? Or is the answer to the question that... Um, I don't know of hardly any young earth creationists who are strongly against evolution that deny, they maybe don't like this term, but that would deny micro-evolution. It's the macroevolution that's the issue, you know, the changing of species and that type of thing. But within that, so I, maybe there's an answer there on, on how the, the, that particular fish or whatever evolved within its species to adapt, you know, that maybe it didn't always do, do that. Because, again, coming back to your comment or addition, that uh, clear implication, maybe strong an implication, is that animals didn't eat animals. Uh, so then, at what point did they begin eating animals? So yes, th- those are all related. And um, but you'd have to ask someone who has a lot more knowledge of it than than I do. Good. Other. Oh, sorry. Right down here. Yes. Well, we don't know, because in verse 26, he even says, and I think this is one of the keys to the chapter. I think a lot of commentators just pass over this, but he says, I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress. Well, what are you referring to, Paul? Is he talking about imminent persecution on the Corinthian church? Uh, that is good for a man to remain as he is. Uh, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Um, but even if you marry, you've not sinned. If a virgin marries, she's not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. So Paul has, is referencing something that the Corinthian church evidently would have known, what he was referring to. Now, I'm not implying that th- this is the key to the whole chapter in the sense that the, the, the principles that Paul lays out here are non-applicable to our day. They clearly are. And then he says in this very letter, a few chapters later, If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. So I'm not implying that these don't apply to today, but there are some unique statements in this chapter about the advantages of singleness. And again, I'm not denying that there aren't always advantages of singleness, but there are some pretty strong statements, especially in contrast with the man who wrote, the same man who wrote in Ephesians 5, exalting marriage by saying it's a picture of Christ in the church and uh, all of that, he, 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 I think wrongly, but some people almost feel like First Corinthians 7 has a real downer view of marriage. They read it that way. And I can see how you would. I, I don't think that's the case, but, but I, I do think part of the factor that you, you, you have to factor in is that there, was some, there were some dynamics going on that Paul alludes to but doesn't spell out, and so we don't know what they are. And so you could take from that certainly some applications uh, in, in other words, there are situations where, um, I, in fact, I've given this counsel where there are men going to a certain part of the world in the mission field where I think it's valid good counsel to say, you'd probably be wise not to get married. That's probably not the place to take a wife. Probably best not to. You, you just, uh, and so there are, circum- whether it's persecution um, or other, other situations, so Paul has some things in mind there. Again, not in saying that his principles don't transcend even those, but in answer to your question, we don't know all that was behind it. We can, you know, conjecture some of it, but we don't know. But he he definitely definitely has a far um, stronger, not anti-marriage view here, but cautious marriage view than it appears in other passages. Good. Other other questions? Yeah, Steve? What's the importance um, in Acts 7
1: when Stephen's being stoned and he sees Jesus Christ
0: standing at the right hand of the Father mm-hmm. instead yeah. of sitting? Right. It, I, who knows? I mean, in other words, um, it, it, is, it is stated in Hebrews that when he had completed his work, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God and it's stated several times. So as a result, some people really camp on that. I'm not implying, implying wrongly so, but that that's something significant. That this shows the heart of the Lord for His people uh, who are dying for His sake. Similar to how they would tie it in when, when Paul or Saul was struck down on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Uh, in other words, showing the, the, the link and the tie that the Lord has with His people. And so that may be, that certainly may be uh, the, the what that is indicating. Uh, but again, because the text doesn't s- tell us, if, if I were speaking on that passage and bringing that out, I would say something like, Is it possible that Jesus was standing at showing, you know, sort of the emotion of his tie with his people? I, I, w- I wouldn't feel comfortable just dogmatically if I don't have chapter and verse that says he was standing because it was showing that, you know, his emotion in connection with Stephen, the first martyr. Uh, Do I think that's a possibility? Certainly. But um, if you don't have chapter and verse, it's better to at least phrase it or couch it somewhat. Good. Uh, I think we have about two minutes, so maybe one more. Any final one before? Oh, back there in the... Yes. Yes. Um, I'm not sure exactly what you're looking for, Luke. Other than that, Paul goes on to delineate his gospel in verses three and four. Deliver you first of all what I received: Christ died for our sins, and then he gives two supporting subpoints: a scriptural one, and for lack of a better term, pragmatic one. Uh, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So, if you're outlining this, point one is Christ died for our sins: a according to the scriptures, and b he was buried. You don't bury people who are alive. That shows he was dead, because Scripture said he would die, and he and he was buried. And his point, second point, is that he rose again the third day, and he gives two supporting subpoints again, uh, according to the Scriptures. And then he was seen. Um, and the only reason I point that out is that I, I, I often hear people preach on this passage, and they say there are three points to the gospel: uh, Christ died for our sins. He was buried, and he rose the third day. I don't think that's the outline of what Paul is giving. I think there are two points with two supporting subpoints that are exactly parallel, and they're both. Christ died, according to the Scriptures, and was buried. He rose again, according to the Scriptures, and was seen. That was the sort of the nutshell of Paul's gospel. So he says back in verse 1, I'm just going to declare to you again, reaffirm the gospel that I preached to you. And of course, in the context of this chapter, the whole 15th chapter is about resurrection. There were actually some in the Corinthian church that did not believe in future literal bodily resurrection. So that's what he counters throughout this entire 15th chapter. So he opens the chapter by saying, if you deny literal bodily resurrection, you need to understand you're denying the gospel because that's part and parcel of the gospel. It's Christ died for our sins. That's the first main point, And the second main point is he rose again the third day. And he was seen. You don't see a phantom or a ghost or a spirit. He was seen because he was literal, a little resurrection. So he says, I, I'm just going to reiterate what I preached to you, which you received. This is the message you received. And it's in which you stand, a statement about perseverance of the saints, if you will. In other words, I'm confident that you belong because it wasn't just some emotional decision, but you're still standing in that by which you're saved. This is, you're saved by your embracing of this truth. Uh, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Again, a statement that Paul was always mindful of the fact that you can't see a person's heart or a group of people's hearts, and so just an initial positive response to the gospel doesn't guarantee that the people are really saved. So he, was, he, he often added this. He does in Colossians. He adds this same type of statement in Colossians 1. Several places that, you know, basically I'll paraphrase, if your faith was real, then I, then I know you're saved. So that's what I think he's saying here in verse 2. You're saved, um, you're holding on to this word, and let me tell you, remind you what it was, verses 3 and 4, that's my gospel. Okay, good stuff. Let's pray and we'll head toward lunch. Father, thank you so much for the start of a new semester, just a, a couple, two or three weeks in. Uh, just always exciting this time of the year as students come back, new students come in, and just the uh, energy, the electricity that's uh, around the school as students are learning and growing and wrestling and thinking through issues. And thank you that we can even uh, occasionally use chapel to along these lines, just to wrestle with some things out loud and to uh, bounce them around, think through, and try to sharpen our understanding. I pray that. Uh, that just our, our brief time in your word today would contribute to that end, uh, just to sharpen us and, and give us greater insight into your truth and how to uh, understand it, how to explain it, uh, how to minister uh, it to others. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.